Um, If you have your Bibles this morning, I would ask that you turn to the book of Micah. Uh, I recognize that as you're turning to the book of Micah, it may be somewhat difficult to find, just because it occurs in a portion of Scripture where we just, we really aren't that familiar with. Uh, So you think through your Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you keep going, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Uh, In fact, actually, as you're looking for the book, you probably have to say it like I do in my mind. You have to work through the books of the Bible just to find it. I think it's indicative of the fact that because we struggle to even find the book of Micah, it, it kind of tells us that we really don't know a lot of what Micah actually says. It's like when someone asks you to go to the grocery store and pick something up. And you walk in, you have no idea where to even begin to, what aisle to go on. You know, someone says, go get some oregano from the grocery store. And you're, you're thinking, I don't even know what oregano is. And then you're like, where, where do I find this? Well, I think, that's, I think that's what happens to us when we, when we turn to the book of Micah. We're, we're unfamiliar with a lot of the context historically. And, and so when we begin reading Micah, our, our mind kind of enters this fog and we just start reading. And you all know the experience of reading and reading and, and you're turning pages and it's been 15 minutes. And then you look down at the page and you're like, I don't even remember one thing I read the last 15 minutes. And you just realize you've just been turning pages. I think that's what happens to us sometimes when we, we go to this portion of scripture, the Old Testament, specifically the minor prophets. We just aren't that familiar with what is be- going on here. But I really do think that when, when, we, when our mind kind of gets in that fog and we're just turning the pages, we really miss some glorious sections of the word of God. The Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And if we really believe that, then, then passages like this should become precious to us. Passages from, from Micah the minor prophet. And so that's what I want to examine this morning. And the verses we'll look at are in the seventh chapter, verses 18 through 20. But before we get there, I just want to set up what's going on in Micah. Because the verses we're going to examine this morning are the last three verses. So, you know, we're not not only jumping into an unfamiliar book, we're jumping into the very end. So we, we don't really have a flow of what's going on in Micah's message. And I just want to take one verse to really set that up. And that's the very first verse of Micah. So before you go to chapter 7, let's look at Micah 1.1. And I'm just going to read this and, and, and make a couple comments about this. Precursory remarks to kind of get us to where we need to be before we start looking at chapter 7. So let's look at Micah 1.1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, I think when we read that, it just seems like kind of a, th- a throwaway fact. But, but when, we, when we turn to this section of the Bible, the prophets, we're, we're reading people's messages to, pe- to, to, to people, to God's people. And we have to understand that those messages took place for a reason, in a specific time, in a specific context. So whenever we're in the prophets, whenever we're in this section of our Bible, we have to understand what's going on historically. And this verse tells us, Micah's preaching in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And just a quick refresher before we get to chapter 7 on Old Testament history. There's, there are a couple key things we need to have in mind as we, as we go into chapter 7. The, the northern kingdom, God's people, in this time period when Micah was preaching, he prophesied that they would be besieged. And then as a result of that siege, they would go into exile. And that when Hezekiah was king, his kingdom would be surrounded entirely by the Assyrian Empire. 
And Micah prophesied to Hezekiah and to those people that they would go into exile as well. So as we have that in our minds, now let's go to the end of of Micah chapter 7. And we want to read this glorious section of the word of God. Micah 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. As we read that, maybe it's like in our minds, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. I didn't even know that was in Micah. This glorious section that exalts God's character. And maybe it's somewhat unfamiliar to us this morning. And so this morning, I want to examine that first question that Micah says. Who is a God like you? That's what we want to spend our time examining. Who is like our God? This question is a question that that gets at the incomparable nature of God. When Micah says, who is a God like you? He isn't saying that there are some. He's asking a rhetorical question. The answer is, there are no, there are none like our God. There are none like Jehovah God. Micah is a book that, that predominantly is characterized by, by prophecy, by preaching of judgment. And that's because God's people were religiously apostate. They had gone away from God. They had gone away worshiping the one true God. They were worshiping idols. And, and as Micah preaches judgment, there are three main sections of the book. And at every end of those sections is a message of hope. And here in the final section of Micah, we have the greatest culmination of this hope. And that is the character of God himself. The incomparable nature of God. That the God that you praise, the God we sang about this morning, there is none like him. And so that begs the question, Why? Why is there none like our God? What is it about God that makes God incomparable in nature? Even the fact that God is incomparable in nature, that's something that was preached last week. We heard about the holiness of God, that God is set apart, he's unique, that there is none like him, and that his holiness governs all of his other attributes. This was preached last week from 1 Peter by Pastor Ben. And, and, And the question is, if, if you're going to demonstrate that, if you wanted to go to one attribute of God, where you wanted to demonstrate that he is holy, if you wanted to go to one work of God to demonstrate that he is holy, what would you go to? Would you go to the fact that he was the creator of the world? Would you go to the fact that he caused a great flood to happen and wipe out almost everyone on this earth? What, what would you go to to demonstrate the incomparability of God? Well, what do you think Micah would go to? I mean, he's preaching to a people group that are about to go into exile. The one thing you think he would tell them that would be really encouraging is, God is a divine warrior. He would say, God fights your battles. God conquers your enemies. That's true historically. God conquered the enemies in the Exodus, as we heard Pastor Roger read. God conquered the Midianites through Gideon. You can go through countless stories in the Old Testament and you can see God conquering his enemies. And you think that's what Micah would encourage 
the people of God with as they go into exile. But what does he say? And before we get there, I want to make this remark that, that in ancient Near Eastern culture, so Egyptian religion, Sumerian religion, Babylonian religion, Assyrian religion, they all thought their God was equally, equally incomparable. If you don't think your God is incomparable, what kind of God do you really serve? It, it's the truth. If, if, if Islam today didn't think their God was incomparable, what's the point of even serving that God? And why do most religions think their God is incomparable? Well, it's because of what we were just talking about, that he gives them victory in battle. And that's what those ancient Near Eastern religions would have gone to to prove that their God was incomparable. My God gave me victory over your nation. Therefore, my God is better than yours. Let's look here. What does Micah go to? Where does he go to demonstrate the incomparable nature of God? Well, look at verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? The thing Micah goes to to demonstrate that our God is incomparable It's not his military might, although that's true. It's not the fact that he created the world, although that's true. It's the fact that God deals with our sin. The reason the God we serve is incomparable is because he desires and wants to deal with your sin this morning. That's why our God is incomparable. He uses two participles to show this. He says that God pardons iniquity and he passes over transgression. And, And the way he even phrases this sentence it, it demonstrates that, that this work of God is a habitual action. It, it isn't that God just pardoned our iniquity one time, but rather that God's character is he pardons our iniquity. God's character is he passes over our transgression. This is referring to total forgiveness. This idea of pardoning iniquity, it, it literally does mean that idea of forgiving someone, releasing them from someone, from something they had done that being their sin against God. This idea of passing over transgression, well, the image you can have in your mind is, it goes back to Exodus. That God, through the angel of the Lord, went through Egypt, and he passed over those who had the blood on their door. That's God's nature. God desires to do that for everyone in here. If you, if you are praising God this morning, the reason that God you are praising was incomparable, is incomparable, is because he wants to deal with your sin, and for some of us, he has. And I think this should begin to shape our understanding of what God is like. God is incomparable because of many attributes, but chiefly because he deals with our sin. He pardons our iniquities. And what, what, what is this talking about, our sin? Well, it's, it's everything. It's the sin that, that you have that, that, you, that no one else really knows about? The sin that you might be ashamed if someone ever actually found out? God knows that, and he doesn't just know it, he has a desire to move toward you in that and pardon you from that. That's the character of the God we serve. When everyone else would move away from you, God desires to move toward you and pardon your iniquity, to deal with your sin. So does this cut against the grain of our conceptions of what God's like? As many of you know, hopefully you know, today is Father's Day. Uh, if you have a father and you're seeking to honor them on this day, well, yeah, you know, hopefully you understand that. But not everyone in here is a father, 
but everyone in here has had a physical father at some point. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. And as we think about that, as we think about our earthly father, we tend to take our conceptions of him or our experiences with him and project that onto God, our heavenly father. Maybe you had a great relationship with your father and you seek to project that onto what God automatically is like toward you. Or maybe your father was distant, severe, frustrated with you. Maybe he was harsh with you. Maybe he mistreated you. You tend to project some experience of that onto God the Father. Or maybe it's not what what your father was like. It's maybe what you wished he was like. You project that onto God the Father. And and what, what can happen for us in our world is that our image, what we think of when we think of God our Father, is we can have an image that is not biblical. We can have an idea that isn't actually what God's word says God the Father is like. We have to let the word of God shape our understanding. We tend to think of Jesus Christ as the compassionate one, the one who healed many, fed many. And we tend to think, naturally, I think for most of us, that God the Father is somewhat removed from us. He's distant. He's, he's hanging over us, waiting for us to mess up. Is this really the character of the God we serve? What is our God like? What is his disposition? What is his inclination? Well, look with me at verse 18, the end. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And we can make two conclusions about that. That God does have anger toward people. It it would be foolish to say that God is only love all the time and that he never has wrath and anger toward people on this earth. It says there that he does have anger. But what is his inclination? What is his desire? And that's this. He delights in steadfast love. This word delight, it literally has reference to what brings a person pleasure, enjoyment. You think about all the things you enjoy in this world. Maybe watching something on the television, something trivial. I hope it's more than that. Maybe you really enjoy... um, eating a specific type of food. I don't know what brings everyone in here, you know, specifically enjoyment. But in reality, we're not really concerned with that this morning. What brings God enjoyment? The thing God delights in, he takes pleasure in, is showing steadfast love to you and to I. God takes great pleasure when you come to him as, his heavenly, as your heavenly father, And you come to him requesting steadfast love, imploring for steadfast love. And and this is the basis for which he can pardon our sins, for which he can pass over our transgressions. Does this begin to shape our understanding of what God is like? That he would move toward us in everything that we do, everything we do that is wrong, he desires to pardon us. He's quick to show steadfast love. I think for some of us, we have to understand that this is what the scripture presents God as like. I mean, you can just go through passages in the Bible that present God as like this. 2 Corinthians 1.3, God is the father of mercy. As Josh read a passage from Lamentations earlier, and that passage speaks to the gracious, unchanging, merciful character of God. You keep reading in Lamentations 3, you recognize that 
Now that's in the middle context of judgment. But what does it say? He, being God, does not afflict from his heart. That isn't his desire. His desire is not to be angry toward people. His desire is to show steadfast love. Exodus 34, 6. God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger. Or this one, Isaiah 54, 7 and 8. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And you can just go through the passages. Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. Jeremiah 31, 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? For often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Ephesians 2, 4. God is rich in mercy. Or Hosea 11, 7 through 9. You can just go through the passages and, and time would fail us if we tried to work through and expand the depth of the mercy of God toward us. Maybe you could think about it like this. Um, imagine when you were a child and uh, you were in your house or wherever you lived and you were walking through the house. This is a purely hypothetical example. Right? Let's just say you happen to have a BB gun in your hands. And while you were walking through your house, you discharged the BB gun and broke a window. Purely hypothetical. All right. Well, what are you going to do? Whoever is the authority in your house is going to come and find that you've broken a window. As a child, you're probably not going to have the means to pay for that window. But you're going to have to go and tell the person that you broke it or they're going to find out the hard way. When they find out the hard way, there are usually hard circumstances that follow. Well, that happened one time, and, and there was that reluctance to go and tell the, the authority, your, your father, your mother, whoever it would have been. Well, let's just say another purely hypothetical example. You have a great idea to go practice tennis outside, and you decide a great idea would be to hit a tennis ball off of a brick wall. And, you know, the brick wall has windows on it. And you just think it would be a great idea to just keep hitting the ball off the wall until you hit the ball straight through the window. And there you have it. You've broken another window. And you're in the same position. You have to go back to that person and tell them what you've done. And you recognize you can't pay for the window. Or let's go with another example. You're mowing the lawn and you're mowing past the side of your house. There are a bunch of rocks. You probably should have picked up some rocks in the lawn before you mowed. And the mower picks up one of those rocks and spins it around and shoots it out like a missile straight through that same window. Now you've broken it again. I'm, uh, the, uh, the, it begs the question, what would, what would the authority figure, your father, your mother, what would they feel toward you in that moment? Would they begin to be frustrated? Here comes so-and-so again, having broken the same window. What would they be like toward you? And that's a trivial example. But let's, let's, let's take that and put that in, in the courtroom of God. How does God feel toward you? What is his disposition toward you? When you come to him and you're asking him to pardon your sins, you're believing that he has for the same thing that he pardoned you of last week. For the same thing that you've done so many countless times. What, what does God feel toward you? What is, his, what is his disposition toward you? And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, you're saying it's steadfast love, but I, I just... 
I don't think that's true. I mean, if, if that's really the case, wouldn't everyone just come to faith in Christ? Wouldn't everyone just have no trouble sinning? If, if God was really like that, then I could just sin all I want. Maybe you're thinking like that this morning. Maybe you think somewhat of what, what I'm saying this morning, what the, what the word of God is saying is a little bit too extreme. God's forgiveness, it can't be that much. His pardon can't be that great for me. Well, there is a qualifier. And look at the qualifier there in verse 18. It says that God pardons iniquity, passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Now, what in the world is that talking about? What is the remnant of God's inheritance? Well, if you've been reading Micah, if, you've been, if you would have been a Jew at this time, you know, frequent with the, with the prophecy and the preaching of Micah, you would have known what he's referring to because he uses this term remnant all throughout the book. In fact, in every hope-filled, hope-filled section in the book of Micah, this term shows up, remnant. And I'll just take you there this morning. Let's just walk through this. Let's do this briefly. I think it'll be helpful for us when we ask the question, who is the remnant? What is this talking about? If this is whom God shows this pardoning character toward, I want to be a part of that. And the question is, who is the remnant? Well, let's look at Micah 2. In Micah 2.12, we have the first occurrence of this hope-filled section. And, and God says this, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. All right, so I'm not going to make many comments on that. Let's just think about what it's saying. God's saying he will gather the remnant together. All right, let's go forward. Let's go to Micah 4. We'll look at verses 6 and, six and 7. Micah 4, verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. So God here takes responsibility for the punishment that, that, that his people were going to endure. And he says, the lame... Those people who I drove away from the land, I will make them a remnant. Verse 7. Those who are cast off a strong nation, the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So now we have ideas in our mind is beginning to form. God is gathering a people together. Well, let's look at chapter 5. Verses 7 and 8. So God's now gathered this people together. Now look look what's going to happen. Verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. Verse 8, the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples. So now they've been gathered together, and now they're the most prominent. So this begins to ask your question, what is this talking about? And, we, and as you read the book of Micah, as you, as you study your Old Testament, you realize that, that God here has promised to those people, that they will be future recipients of a blessing. He will gather them into a nation. He will exalt them. And, and the result will be that all the other nations will come to them and worship the Lord our God. This is anchored back to a promise God made to his people in Deuteronomy. And, and as, we, as you read that, as you go back and forth between Deuteronomy and what's going on here, you recognize that the remnant are going to experience God's saving grace. The chief characteristic of the remnant is that they experience God's saving grace. In fact, Micah, go back to chapter 7, he lumps himself into this remnant, even though he wasn't going to return from exile. 
even though he wasn't even going to go into exile. He says, God will pardon iniquity, pass over transgression for the remnant. Verse 19, look what he, he changes wording. He says, you will have compassion on us. You will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Mike here begins to speak as if he is a part of the remnant, as the part that experiences God's saving grace. So what are the characteristics of the people that experience God's saving grace? Have you experienced God's saving grace? Well, what would be the characteristics of a person that has experienced God's saving grace? And to do this, we can just simply look at Micah's own description, Micah's own words about his own experience. So let's go back to the beginning of chapter 7. And the whole time Micah has been preaching judgment on the people of God for their sin. And this is the first time he really begins to recount his own experience. How he feels about everything that's going on. What he thinks. Let's look at Micah 7 verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 through verse 6. So try and track with me and ask yourself this question. Is what Micah 7, 1 through 6 described, does it sound in any way familiar to my own experience from time to time? Let's look at verse 7, 1 through 6. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fruit, fig, that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well, The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. Verse 6, what's the reason for all this? For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds kind of unfamiliar. Let's, let's just break it down a little bit. Micah here is saying he feels alone. The idea of a remnant in and of itself implies that it's a small amount of people. That the majority are not like that. Micah says, I am experiencing that. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. He gives this image to demonstrate that he feels alone. Why? Because verse 2, the godly have perished from the earth. There aren't godly on the earth. When we think about what's going on in our world today, does our country, does this world, does it seem like there are godly people in this world? There are times when we can feel like this, isolated, like, Lord, It just seems like me and a handful of other people, where are those who are upright? Where are those who are godly? Where are those who want to serve you? Well, why is that the case? Look at verse 6. The reason is because the son treats the father with contempt. When we think about what's going on in our world today, is God's institution of a family valued? Is it prioritized? Is it important? No, it's something to be trampled on. Everything that God put in place for humanity to restrain us from our wickedness, we have trampled on. And that's why we begin to experience this, this loneliness. 
that the godly have perished from the earth. And so when we ask the question, what does Micah do about it? How does the remnant respond to this? Well, look at verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And then I'll read verse 8 through 10. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. She will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Micah's response is one of hope, one of confidence. And how does he have that? It's because of the character of God he exalts in verses 18 through 20. That God pardons iniquity. God deals with his sin. I mean, look at his description of his problem. Here's someone who, who was experiencing God's grace. But look what he says about him, his own experience. Look at verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. The quality of Micah the quality of those who experience God's grace is this right here. It's that they're humble before God and they admit that they have sinned against him. That they deserve to bear the indignation of God, the anger of God because of their own sin. Let's stop there and put that in our own situation. In, in Micah's context, he, he's, he's preaching to a people that are gonna go into exile who, who would be tempted to think, their primary problem, it's not their sin. It's the nation that's oppressing them. That they're in bondage to another people. Now, that probably would be what they think their problem was. But what does he say his problem is? I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Micah recognizes the primary problem for the remnant was not exile. It was not the nation of Babylon. It was not oppression or the injustice they were about to experience. Their primary problem and our primary problem this morning is this, that we are sinners before a God who's holy and righteous and doesn't tolerate it. And because of that, we deserve the wrath and indignation of God. Do you really believe that? Well, if, if we really believe that, what hope is there for us? And it goes back to what verse 18 through 20 says, that the character of God is this, he pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression. Now let's look at verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Here we have three times a different verb is, is paired with a different characterization of sin. He says he will have compassion He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. He'll cast our sins into the depths of the sea. The point is, God deals with our sin and he deals with it finally, comprehensively, to the point where we can't touch it anymore. I mean, look at this last illustration. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. If, if you want to go for an interesting study, an interesting study would be to, to look at the sea. In fact, I was doing some reading about this analogy this week, and it turns out 
I'm not a scientist, so I speak with some reservation, um, that we actually know more about the surface of nearby planets than we do actually about the surface of our own sea. And the reason is just because of the amount of pressure that's down there. In fact, we haven't mapped our ocean surface. We've mapped it from above to a degree of three kilometers or miles. And that means, you know, you can see the really big objects on the ocean floor. But we don't really know what's down there. In fact, we have put 12 people on the moon. 12 human beings have gone up to the moon. Only three people have been to the bottom of the sea. And they were only down there for about 20 minutes. And they weren't walking around in a spacesuit. They were in a metal tank, not moving a whole lot. They were down there for a little bit and they came back up. Why? Well, it's because the pressure is so great down there, they will be crushed. And they can't see anything at all. It's completely dark down there. It's 35,000 feet below the surface. If you were going to go down there and try and find something, how easy would that be? One, you, you don't even know where to begin looking. We, have, we, don't, we don't even know what the bottom of the sea looks like. But two, you can't see anything down there. And getting, even getting a light down there for more than 20 minutes would be a feat in of itself. But then to go down there and find something, and then to solve that, well, this is the analogy God gives. He says, he's put your, your sin down there. In other words, there's no way you can go touch it. There's nothing you can do to go back and get it or recover it. It's completely gone. He has thrown our sin into the depths of the sea. And here, God, through Micah, is making a direct reference to the Exodus, to the passage that Pastor Roger read this morning. Exodus 15.4, Pharaoh's army, his chariots have been thrown into the sea. The thing that was oppressing God's people, the thing that had put them in bondage, the Egyptians, that they were enslaved to, God dealt with that comprehensively. He threw them into the sea and they died. What's the result? Well, it's painted as a work of the steadfast love of the Lord, verse 11 through 13, as a redeeming work of God. But here, Micah reinterprets that. He says, what put you in bondage was not the Babylonians, although they could be tempted to think that they were about to go into exile. What put you in bondage was not another nation or exile. What put you in bondage was your sin. Your sin enslaved you. And it was the worst slave master you could have. But what's the result? God desires to deal with that. He desires to take that slave master and throw it into the depths of the sea so that you won't ever see it again. It will be in your past and you'll never have to think about it again. That's what God desires to do for us. And Micah has extreme confidence. Not that this is just what the Lord does, but he has confidence the Lord will do this for him. And how does he have that confidence? Well, look at verse 9 with me again. Micah 7, 9. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. Micah knows there's someone on his side. That's the Lord pleading his cause. Executing judgment. Put it in, put it in the analogy of a courtroom. Micah's on trial. Someone's brought a a charge against him. And who's going to stand up and defend him? The Lord will. Well, who's brought that charge against Micah? Well, we might be tempted to think the enemy, verse 8. But go back to verse 6, chapter 6. Look with me at Micah 6, verse 1 and 2. Who has brought the charge against Micah? 
chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring the foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. And he would contend with Israel. God brings a charge against his people. And he also stands up to defend them. And so, in conclusion, that brings us to a question. How, how can he do this? How can God bring a charge against his people, but then stand up and defend them? Plead their cause, execute just, justice for them. And that brings us straight to the New Testament, to the person of Jesus Christ. If you go to 1 John with me, we'll, we'll go to this passage and we'll conclude there this morning. 1 John. This is a passage I hope we're familiar with. If, if you're in Christ, if you've been walking with Christ, this is one you will become familiar with just because of necessity. Because you will sin. You will do things that deserve the indignation of God. Well, 1 John 2, look at verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Your sin deserves God's indignation. You're enslaved to it. But what does God desire to do? He desires to pardon you. How does he do that? Because a person pleads for you, the person of Jesus Christ. The person who took all of your sins with him into the depths of the sea and then rose again. That person deals with your sin. Our greatest need this morning is not peace. It's not financial stability. It's not a happy marriage. What is our greatest need? Our greatest need is for God to individually deal with each one of our sins because of what our sins deserve. Our sins make it so we deserve to be thrown into the depths of the sea. In terms of application for this, it's pretty straightforward. We read a passage like this, that God will have compassion on his children. He pardons iniquity, passes over their transgression. He's going to cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And it would be sufficient to just say, to sit here and marvel at the God that we serve. He's incomparable in his saving character toward us. Think about the songs we sang this morning. Wonderful, merciful Savior. Almighty, infinite Father. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, the great high priest whose name is love, Jesus Christ. And can it be, how do I deserve the mercy and saving love of God? Or think about this, that people on this earth would gather in a room this morning and sing these words. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Thrown in to a sea, without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. The application is simple. To praise God, to delight in God because of what he's done for us. But maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, all I've really heard this morning are just a bunch of words. All I really sang was just a bunch of words. This doesn't really stir me up. It doesn't make me delight in God and have joy in God. Well, why is that the case? Well, I want to go through a couple of reasons why that may be the case for you this morning. Maybe it's because you don't see yourself as a sinner. You think about this past week you had? Did you lean on the steadfast love of God? 
How many times did you think about the, that God will throw your sins into the depths of the sea and he's completely eradicated that as a slave master in your life? Did you even think about that this week? How often did it come to your mind? And if it isn't coming to your mind often, well, it probably reveals that I don't think that's my greatest need. My greatest need might be material provision, circumstances in this world. But my greatest need isn't for God to pardon me of my sin. There are some in here, sadly, who may never experience this character of God. That he's pardoning, compassionate. He abounds in steadfast love. How sobering should that be for us? Maybe a reason this doesn't stir you up in love and affection toward God is because you actually enjoy your sin. The Bible describes us as slaves to sin in bondage. The devil doesn't love you. He wants to destroy your soul. He uses your sin, your flesh to oppress you. You don't really have a hatred of sin that characterizes those who follow Christ and love Christ. Maybe this picture of God doesn't affect you because you've never fully repented. You've never actually repented. You want God's forgiveness, but you also want your sin. You want to experience what some might call cheap grace. You don't want to feel guilty over your sin, so Lord, get rid of the guilt. But as soon as the guilt is gone, so is my desire to live for Christ. You never really seem to make progress in your walk with God. The things you sing and hear about on Sunday don't really affect you the rest of your week. You have to begin to ask yourself this question, has the love of God actually changed me? Or maybe this, and I think this would be more true of most of us in here, that we don't have a right perspective of God. We have projected our own idea of God onto him. We have low thoughts of God. When we enter heaven one day, I don't think God will look at us and say, wow, you really understood the depths of my love toward you. That's probably not what we're going to hear. We're going to be weeping in tears of joy because we understand finally just how much God's steadfast love is poured out on you in your life. Maybe the reason this doesn't stir you up in love and affection toward Christ is because you want to be the one to throw your sins into the depths of the sea. Or you want to go back and dig it up again so that you can do it. What you're asking for is impossible. Do you turn to God? Do you rest in Christ that he took all of your sins, bore them on himself, and now they're in the depths of the sea where you can never, never go back to them anymore? As we sit here this morning and reflect on this, we have to take joy. It should stir up our hearts. And I pray to God that it does. This thing. That God has dealt with our sin. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. It's his joy. It brings him pleasure. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot to the point where they're unrecognizable. He will cast your sins into the depths of the sea. He'll show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham. Because he has promised to them. And for us, Lord, he has made a promise. That we have an advocate with Jesus Christ who pleads on our behalf, who executes judgment for us. Justice so that we can stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Let's pray together this morning and praise him.
for his incomparable nature. Oh God, our, our Father, we, we sit here on a day this morning when we read your word and we just we reflect on your, your nature. And Lord, it does grieve us that this doesn't stir us up more. Lord, maybe it's because we don't see our own sin. Maybe it's because we, we love our own sin. But Lord, when we begin to get a glimpse of just how great your love and forgiveness is toward us, fact that you've dealt with our sin finally, totally, comprehensively, it really does begin to inflame our hearts toward you to the point where we want to go out and serve you with all of our lives. Lord, we plead for this this week. May we love you because of your love that you have displayed toward us on Calvary. We commit these things to you and we depend on you for all things. In the name of Jesus Christ, our advocate, who's pleading for us right now. Amen.